When I lived at, I should begin, I suppose, by introducing myself. I'm Scooter Libby from the Hudson Institute. And I wanted to point out that when I lived at uh, 10,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains, we used to speak somewhat derisively, I must say, about flatlanders. <laughs> so I feel a great affinity for His Holiness from the Heights and, and, and his delegation. But I also should note the presence of some notable flatlanders here among us. Of course, president of Hudson uh, Institute, uh, Ken Weinstein, who you heard from just a little while ago. And also our uh, chairperson from the Heights of Westchester County, who I think is here somewhere, Sarah Stern. I also should note this remarkable audience, which I've had a little chance to speak with on the margins of this session and some the other night. And it is truly uh, remarkable for its expertise uh, and the scope of its wisdom and cross-cultural understanding. And I, I must say that the affinity I felt for His Holiness almost immediately upon meeting him gives me great hope that I will one day understand Southern Californians. <laughs> Dr. Joshi uh, mentioned that uh, the answers do not always come from the men in white coats. And it reminded me that in 1969, as our astronauts were picking up their air conditioning units and heading towards the launch pad, our leading scientists were discovering that their calculations about the universe didn't work. Uh, it turned out they were a fraction off the fraction they were off was 95%. I always wondered uh, if they went up and told the astronauts or uh, if the, as they were uh, hanging upside down in the capsule. Um, by the way, we really don't understand very much about the universe um, at all in our uh, 10b5 disclosure requirements having been met. So what do you do when you don't understand 95% uh, of the universe? Well. The scientists had a solution, um, and that was to make up a name for the rest of it. And so they came up with the term uh, dark matter and the term dark energy to explain everything that they didn't understand. And they, what is the nature of this dark matter? Well, the nature was whatever it had to be to make their calculations work out. And we call this the scientific method. <laughs> If we had um, cinified that, we might call it yin and yang, but this would make for some unusual footnotes in scientific papers. In the spring of 2015, His Holiness uh, was welcomed at CERN, the Center for uh, Advanced Nuclear Research in Europe. And it was a session that they called Science Meets Buddhism. Great minds, great matters. <laughs> so a sub-theme of this was that both science and spirituality deal with perceptions of reality. And the deeper we look into reality, the more bizarre it becomes and the more spiritual the answers become. America's founders believed in another great link between spirituality, and that being between spirituality and good governance. They wrote the Constitution not to bar spirituality, but to protect it so that it would protect us. 
All of our founders sought to grasp the hand of wisdom that comes from something greater than man's linear knowledge. They did, just, they did this not just to handle uncertainty, but to serve moral ends as they progressed. There's a fundamental geopolitical challenge that we face. Until CERN discovers time travel, we have to live time moving forward. Looking backward, it's very easy to know what we should have done about the Soviet Union, or about the National Socialists, or about the Holy Roman Emperor, or about the Persian Empire. Looking forward, few knew what we had to do. Today we face uncertainty as well. Uh, there was reference earlier to the Chinese um, strategy of one belt, one road, which has a nice ambiguity built into it. Uh, a belt can be something which surrounds something usefully. It can also mean a punch. <laughs> what bothers me more than the ambiguity in belt is the ambiguity in the, or the sense that there's only one road. Peering through the dark matter of geopolitics, we seek to do the right thing. Spirituality may be our best guide to doing this as we combined security and morality in the search of where to head for a shifting reality. T.S. Eliot said that anyone could carve a goose if it weren't for the bones. Today we have with us four great goose carvers <laughs> who may also tell us whose geopolitical goose is being cooked. So when we're hanging upside down in our capsule as we head off into the next couple decades, knowing that we only understand 5% of what lies ahead, we'll be able to look back on these four gentlemen as having been our best guides. We have with us Ashok Malik, who will speak about the domestic aspects of the critical states in the Indian Himalayan region. He is the Australia Indian Institute Chair for Indo-Pacific Studies. He's also a leading journalist for various Indian and international publications. He looks at the maritime and energy security in the region uh, and the institutional architecture of the Indo-Pacific region. He's the author of a book, India, Spirit of Enterprise, which examines the role of the private sector in the economy. We also have with us Eric Brown, one of my colleagues who will discuss China's Western advance into Central Asia, Tibet and Nepal, and its intentions for the region. Eric has been looking at this for some time as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he focuses on the Middle East, North Africa, East Asia, and the Pacific. He's an expert on terrorism and radical ideologies and a co-editor of Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. I must also say that when Hudson makes, does the remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Eric is most likely to be found with a pickaxe and a compass going down the, the valleys of the Himalayas. We have with us, as you all have met earlier, Ambassador Hussein Economy, who will provide the overview of Pakistan's relations in the region. He's also a senior fellow and director for South and Central Asia at Thar Institute. 
He served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011. And I would say about him that he is also a man of great courage. He put himself at great personal risk to secure a better future for his country, and it's something we should all admire him greatly for. And finally, Dr. Raja Mohan, who will discuss the potential and challenges for India posed by China and its Silk Road diplomacy. He serves as the head of strategic studies at the Observer Research Foundation. He's a regular columnist for the India Express. He's a non-resident senior associate in the Carnegie Endowment South Asia program with great expertise on the region on foreign and defense policy issues. So let us strap ourselves in, be ready for takeoff, and I'll turn it over to the panel. Good morning, uh, everyone. Thank you so much to the Hudson Institute and the Observer Research Foundation and His Holiness uh, the Drupka for inviting me here and inviting all of us here for what uh, is proving to be a very educative session. At least the first session was very educative for me and so was His Holiness's address. Uh, I'm here to speak on uh, the domestic aspects of uh, the Himalayan phenomenon, as it were, in Indian politics, society, and economic development. Uh, these have changed in the past few months and past couple of years. There has been a rethinking in the way we imagine the Him Himalayas and uh, the potential we see in them, which is what I'm here to explain. Of course, uh, my colleague, Dr. Rajamohan, will speak about the, the broader uh, foreign policy challenges, uh, which will complement what I'm trying to say, hopefully. Uh, historically, the Himalayas uh, have been seen with a great degree of reverence by Indians, but also, I would argue, with a certain strategic defensiveness mm -hmm. as a border, as a wall, as an end rather than a beginning. Uh, this is despite the fact that the Himalayas have been a traditional trading route, but broadly, the Himalayas were where Indian civilization ended and the Chinese civilization began. And frankly, uh, they were a barrier. The, the, the degree of osmosis expected between two great and ancient civilizations was just not uh, anywhere close to its potential. And which is why historically India and China have actually known so little about each other uh, because the natural wall of the Himalayas became a, a, a perceptional wall as well. Uh, Till 1962 when we had a border war with China, the, the, the Himalayas were also a natural boundary protecting India militarily. Of course, that has changed with modern warfare and modern threats. Uh, in the past few years, we've begun to reimagine the Himalayas. Rather than see it in defensive terms, uh, there is recognition that uh, more than a border to defend, it's a frontier to exploit. It's an economic frontier, it's a social frontier, it's a, ge it's a geographical frontier looming with opportunities. And much like the Indian Ocean, uh, it is a, 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 a peripheral geography, the strategic salience of which uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government is eager to tap in, into. Uh, while researching my, my talk this morning, for this morning's uh, session, I uh, came across a very interesting uh, uh, fact which is very relevant to our discussion today. Uh, Ladakh, where His Holiness uh, has, uh, is based, is uh, actually very central to a pressing Indian uh, concern, which is uh, its border negotiations with China. Uh, 
Indian and Chinese governments have been negotiating the, the exact uh, uh, demarcation of their border uh, ever since both countries became independent or uh, became republics in, in the late 1940s. And uh, that negotiation actually goes back uh, over 100 years to the time when the British were negotiating on India's behalf with uh, the Chinese emperor. Uh, Various documents and various uh, precedents have been cited in, in the course of that long protracted negotiation which uh, has not been resolved yet and which represents uh, one of the world's la last major unresolved uh, land border uh, disputes. Uh, in the 1950s, one of the documents which the government of India cited uh, in its favor while uh, negotiating with the Chinese was uh, the Treaty of uh, Tingmos Gang. I hope I pronounced it correctly. This treaty, which was uh, both a, a land boundary agreement as well as a, a bilateral trade agreement, goes back to the year 1684. It was signed between the King of Ladakh and uh, the Lamas in uh, Tibet, in Lhasa. And uh, depending on how you interpret uh, this treaty of 1684, uh, India decides where its boundary is and, and China decides where its boundary or, or Tibet's boundary is. Uh, it's, it's, it's very meaningful and uh, in very interesting coincidence that uh, the person who negotiated the Treaty of uh, Tingmong Mosgang on behalf of the King of Ladakh was uh, His Holiness the Sixth Trupka, the predecessor and previous incarnation of uh, His Holiness the Twelfth Trupka. So this, uh, this is something, uh, and, and the lineage the His Holiness represents is actually very, very important for a very contemporary political issue in India. Uh, coming to more recent initiatives with the Modi government, uh, the Modi government has replaced the planning commission, which has been central to developmental planning in our country in India for the past 50 odd years, uh, with a new commission called the, the Policy Commission or the Niti Aayog. Uh, the planning commission had a, a top-down mandate with Delhi, the capital, deciding what the states would do, how they would sort of follow the economic and social uh, uh, development plans. Niti Aayog uh, imagines a more province-led, a more bottom-up approach. Part of this new approach is a clustering of states or provinces that have similar geographical, social, and economic challenges. One such cluster is going to be that of Himalayan states. Uh, exact details are sketchy and not available because I spoke to a senior person at the Niti Aayog at the Policy Commission before I came here and he said uh, there was an internal assessment on as to the challenges of Himalayan states and how exactly the clustering of these states uh, would happen. But uh, going by what Prime Minister Modi himself has said in, in various uh, public uh, meetings and engagements, uh, and as uh, the previous speakers in the previous session did mention, uh, seeking economic opportunities and creating jobs in the region, uh, using tourism, uh, exploiting the biodiversity of the Himalayas, particularly for traditional and herbal medicines, uh, tapping into hydroelectricity, uh, expanding room for trade with neighboring countries and regions by reopening or, or strengthening traditional and historical trade routes. All of these are part of the agenda. There is also the a very compelling issue of infrastructure and capacity building, particularly with regard to disaster preparedness, because the Himalayas are beautiful, but they're also fragile. And uh, they are, in, in India at least, uh, locations of uh, a very rapid and somewhat reckless urbanizing, 
which is leading to its own problems and challenges. We saw uh, an example of this in not in India but in Nepal recently, where very rapid and urban, urban, uh, a very rapid and reckless urbanizing uh, actually accentuated the the impact of the recent earthquake. Uh, we saw this in the devastating floods and landslides in uh, the Indian state of Uttarakhand, which is also in Himalayan state, in 2013. We saw this in the Kashmir earthquake in uh, 2005, which affected that part of Kashmir, which uh, is with Pakistan. We saw it with the Pakistani floods of 2010. Uh, we saw it uh, uh, with uh, uh, the floods in, in Kashmir, in Indian Kashmir in uh, 2014. Uh, disaster preparedness, uh, which is not just limited to one country, but is a, a cross-Himalayan problem, really, is, is central to uh, Mr. Modi's approach and the Indian government's approach to, to working with uh, the Himalayas, working in the Himalayas. Uh, in the case of Nepal, it was noticed that Indian support in the form of first responders, uh, rescue and relief operations, got to work very swiftly. We were, we were on the ground very, very quickly. <laughs> now, this wasn't entirely unplanned, or it, it didn't happen by chance. Actually, uh, as uh, was mentioned in the previous session, uh, uh, technologists and, 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 and uh, seismologists rather have been anticipating an earthquake in the Nepal region, in the Himalayan region, for several years now. Uh, historically, once in about 70 to 80 years, there's a big earthquake. The last big one was in 1934, and uh, 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 another earthquake was on the cards, though, of course, no one can predict earthquakes. Uh, it's interesting that in 2011, in, in Washington, D.C., India and the US led an uh, international effort uh, to prepare and, uh, uh, and make uh, preparations for a possible relief and rehabilitation effort in N Nepal in case of another. This happened as recently as 2011. And uh, obviously, the work that went, in, went into that preparation after that conference of 2011 paid dividends in 2014. So this does tell us that disaster preparedness uh, and, and actually talking things through for the Himalayas of, or perhaps any other region uh, does actually bear, bear fruit in, in, uh, in times of uh, great tragedy and can actually save lives. Uh, infrastructure relates to uh, making lives safer. Infrastructure also relates to making lives uh, that much more meaningful, prosperous, and better. I refer, of course, to border infrastructure or Himalayan infrastructure that improves connectivity, telecom connectivity, road, conne uh, road connectivity, rail connectivity. India's Himalayan regions, as Dr. Arvind Gupta mentioned, can become great incubators for innovation and technology, including for the information technology sector, which uh, is so big in India and which has so many spin-off businesses. Uh, but better telecom links are very necessary. Without that, we can't really fulfill uh, our potential. India's Himalayan regions can contribute as trade routes to, to China, to Tibet, to Central Asia, because they remain our, our final frontier, our final pathway to Central Asia. And Ladakh is just so important there, because it connects Central Asia to India. Uh, to India's east, uh, uh, the Himalayan states in India can connect us to, to ASEAN countries, beginning with Myanmar. But all of this requires better train and road connectivity, because right now, uh, border infrastructure is abysmal. The Modi government has announced some flagship projects to fill these gaps. In his first railway budget in 2014, the year it took uh, office and won an election, it allocated 50 billion rupees towards railway projects in the largely Himalayan northeastern parts of our country. 
50 billion rupees uh, translates to about uh, 800 million US dollars. Uh, it, that may not sound impressive on its own, but uh, year on year that represented a 54% increase in the budget for the northeastern region. Uh, additionally, the Kashmir Railway, uh, which will connect the Indian mainland to, to Baramula in the Kashmir Valley, uh, is in its final stages of completion. It's expected that it will be, be ready in 2017. In the northeast uh, alone, there are 23 major railway infrastructure projects currently underway being paid for by that $800 billion uh, budget, which was announced last year. Uh, <coughs> together, when these projects bear fruit and uh, these projects reach a certain conclusion and when the, the Kashmir Railway is complete, the Himalayan region, uh, which has been to the periphery of India, will become much more integrated with uh, the Indian economy and the Indian common market. Uh, lastly, the Bharat Mala, which translates to the necklace of India, is a project that proposes to build a, a very long uh, and robust border highway from India's western desert frontier uh, right up to the Himalayan north and then to the eastern northeast, encompassing entires, uh, India's entire land perimeter. This is the most ambitious such idea in Indian history, in the <coughs> 5,000 years of Indian history. We've never seen something like this. Uh, and it will actually link the entire land peri uh, boundary of India. Uh, as and when it is completed, again, it will do uh, wonders for integrating India's Himalayan periphery and, and Himalayan states with uh, the main, mainland's economy and its, its common market. Uh, as you can see, these are very ambitious uh, uh, ventures, and uh, they are generating great hopes, hopes that are almost as tall as the peaks of the Himalayas. I'll leave it there. Eric? Thank you. Um, when Dr. Pandey asked me to speak, she said, cram everything that I know into about five minutes, so I promise I'll speak very slowly. <laughs> um, but there was a very nasty attack um, on the front page of a very famous think tank in Beijing, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, recently. The attack was on uh, a group of American historians of the Qing Empire. They singled out these historians for writing history which was subversive of Chinese rule. The, the reason is, is that what the historians did is they went back and they looked at the history of the Manchu Empire. And they, of course, began with the assessment, the historical fact, that the Manchus, of course, were not Chinese. They were an inter-Asian people that entered into China proper what historians used to call China proper, that is the historical Chinese-speaking lands of central, what we call China today, and established their rule over that part of Asia. And from there, the Manchus conducted a bunch of strategic campaigns to defend what was the, effectively the crown jewel of their imperium. And those strategic campaigns included marching westward, first deep into what was then known as East Turkestan, which eventually came to be known under the Qing rule as Xinjiang. And then from there, they also marched into Tibet. And so it was under Manchu rule, under non-Han Chinese rule, that China and Tibet were incorporated into one imperium and, and, and existed as, in a way, different parts of this imperium. We know from history that the relationships between the Himalayas, Tibet, and China were much, much more complex than that. Um, uh, I've traveled parts of the old Kunming Lhasa Highway, for example, and along that way you can collect all sorts of very interesting stories about old Tang princesses who have come to 
um, um, uh, develop relationships with the locals. Um, uh, and of course, the, the trade and the cultural commerce, if you will, that took place between Tibet and China for across the centuries was much, much more complex than, than uh, most uh, schoolboy histories can give a proper account of. Um, and indeed, when, uh, uh, in 1911, when the Xinhai Geming happened, it was China which was freed from somebody else's empire that came to be freed from the Manchu Empire. And as we know as well, Tibet enjoyed de facto sovereignty up until the 1950s, before it was forcibly integrated into the new Chinese empire called the People's Republic of China. Of course, the innovation that PRC introduced at that time was that Tibet had always been an integral part of China. Uh, and in fact, PRC also claimed that East Turkestan, or Xinjiang, had, was in fact an integral part of China. Uh, and so one of the reasons why this think tank is clearly attacking this group of American scholars who are trying to give an objective account of very interesting complex relations between different polities over time on the Asian mainland is because what they're producing is a history that's very subversive of the CCP's claim that Tibet and Xinjiang have always been integral parts of the Chinese empire. Um, these quarrels over history matter mainly because it is on the basis of China's claim to Tibet that the PRC rejects the middle way proposed by the Dalai Lama, uh, that China, that Tibet should enjoy uh, autonomy within uh, the People's Republic of China. It's also on these grounds that they've attacked the, um, the minority rights campaigner um, in Xinjiang, Ilham Toti, who, uh, among other things, he's now in prison for uh, terrorism charges when all he's been doing, has been standing up for um, the rights of, of the minority Uyghurs in East Turkestan. In the PRC's language um, today, their national strategy language, both Tibet and Xinjiang are referred to as essential components of the great project of Chinese national rejuvenation. And when you look at the recent <coughs> white paper produced by the Communist Party of China, they describe this in very chilling terms. Um, uh, the t Chinese white paper on Tibet describes this in very chilling terms. They say, any person or force that attempts to resist the tide will simply be cast aside by history and by the people. We know what this means in practice. Uh, in practice, um, uh, I think in the last uh, few years, we've seen what began as a demographic uh, and, and uh, economic effort to, in a, in a way, subjugate East Turkestan and Tibet has now uh, given way to a much, much more sophisticated attack to obliterate cultural difference in these areas. Um, in, uh, in Xinjiang, um, uh, shopkeepers are now forced, um, uh, in Muslim Xinjiang, shopkeepers are now forced to sell alcohol and cigarettes. They're forced to open up their restaurants during Ramadan. Um, in Tibet, um, uh, all of you I know follow the situation there. I, I would, however, uh, point you in the direction of comments made recently by the Chinese Panchen Lama. Uh, I don't mean to gainsay his practice of Buddhism, but this, of course, is a man who, who was appointed by the Chinese Communist Party in the late 1990s when the Chinese Communist Party asserted control over the cycles of reincarnation. Uh, so in, he's an employee of the Chinese Communist Party. He raised a bit of a scandal in Beijing recently when he said that due to China's policies in, to, in Tibet, 
Buddhism is at risk of existing in name only. So what does this all this mean for China's geopolitical ambitions, uh, both in Tibet but also in Central Asia? We spoke a little bit earlier about the One Belt, One Road policy. This is a, a geopolitical project that I've been studying for some time. I sometimes imagine uh, Lord Kurtzan, who famous in the English-speaking world for describing India as the pivot of Asia. I, I sometimes imagine him lamenting the fact that uh, journalists and, and a lot of people today have uh, used the word pivot to describe all manner of new kinds of strategic initiatives. Uh, I sometimes wonder if Kurtzan would feel that uh, pivot used to be a useful term for geopolitical analysis, but now uh, describes, uh, I think, this general period of upheaval that we're living through. But whereas the US has been, I think, very rudderless over the last few years and not very clear about what its strategic ambitions are, China has been acting with great purpose. The PRC, in fact, has been acting with great purpose. In recent weeks, we've seen that it's declared billions of dollars investment in, in implementing its one road, one belt policy. It essentially proceeds along two different routes. Uh, Xinjiang has been uh, uh, constituted in recent years not simply as a defensive zone, which is what it was in the 1950s and the 1960s for PRC strategic thinking, but now it's been constituted as a great gateway for Chinese expansion into Central Asia and into South Asia. Chinese strategists uh, conceive of their project of building strategic infrastructure as connecting Xinjiang and, of course, China itself to the Baltic Sea within the next uh, several decades. Uh, actually, it's happened already. Uh, there are trains leaving uh, Chongqing and uh, dropping Chinese-made goods off in Rotterdam. Um, uh, this is uh, a sign of, I think, uh, large geopolitical shifts that are to come. Another aspect of the Silk Road, uh, of this new uh, uh, road, of course, involves heavy investment in Pakistan, uh, through which China, uh, Chinese strategists describe an effort to build a great economic corridor uh, which will bring Chinese power directly onto the doorstep of the Persian Gulf. Um, uh, they announced the recent $52 billion worth of investments. Um, uh, when you look at where these strategic infrastructure investments are going to take place, they, they take place along a very sort of slim back backbone that stretches from Xinjiang down into Baluchistan. Uh, and it largely favors the development of the Punjab area of Pakistan. Uh, uh, and um, there are already people who are worried that these kinds of investments might upset the prospects of Pakistan stabilizing itself around a federal uh, political system. Um, there are people within Pakistan and elsewhere that are worried that this introduction of large Chinese largesse is going to um, effectively facilitate the Punjabi colonization of Baluchistan, which of course parts of Pakistan has been fighting uh, a protracted and, and, and very sad um, uh, uh, struggle with, uh, with various Baluch separatist movements for uh, uh, several decades now. Um, all of this raises some very uh, important questions, which US policy is still grappling with. Um, and it's not quite clear yet how any of us should think about how to proceed. I mean, there's clearly great opportunity. When you crisscross a place like Central Asia, 
You can talk to strategists and other people in the governments in Central Asia who will say that greater Chinese investment, uh, greater Chinese involvement in our national development is a good thing. Not only does it provide us with an opportunity to balance uh, Russian uh, revanchism, but uh, uh, PRC investment is finally going to unlock the potential of Central Asia and connect these economies to Europe and also to uh, the, the advanced economies of East Asia. Um, you hear a similar um, uh, optimism, I think, in Pakistan. You hear it also in, um, in Southeast Asia. But then there's also this sense of dread, um, a concern that, that some of this investment is going to uh, tilt uh, 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 quarrels which have been taking place in some of these countries in favor of, uh, um, in, in, in very negative directions. Um, uh, and the other thing, too, um, which we need to keep in mind is the more PRC um, makes these investments, uh, the buildup of these large land ports which are being built uh, in Chongqing and Kunming and elsewhere and in interior China and western China, uh, that places greater demand on the Himalayas to produce water and energy. And so we've seen as a consequence of this great March West, um, uh, greater demands on the limited natural resources of the Himalayas. Um, and this is programmed to grow. These kinds of demands are programmed to grow as a consequence of, of these geopolitical initiatives that PRC has announced. So as a practical matter, how do we begin to think about some of these things? Um, uh, I think, uh, among other things, uh, beyond uh, the discussions that the US and India have, have had about nuclear cooperation, uh, the next phase of those discussions needs to talk very seriously about bringing to India and other countries that live downstream of the Himalayas um, advanced desalination technologies. Um, this is, uh, I think, a matter of urgent importance for uh, uh, India, Indian agriculture and for the livelihoods of the, of the many millions of people who, who benefit from, from, from the waters of the Himalayas downstream. I think there are other um, very practical uh, strategic and military implications. Um, uh, I think the United States, for example, should take a very active interest in the development of the Indian 17th Corps as a kind of a deterrent uh, for um, uh, the kinds of uh, PRC uh, uh, territorial claims that we've seen in, in different parts of the Himalayas over the last uh, few years and which are likely to become uh, uh, likely to, we're likely to see more of in, in the coming years. But I think that these are all sort of defensive policy measures. Um, the more, much, much more difficult thing is, of course, political. Uh, Leo Xiaobo, uh, the Nobel laureate, uh, said that the Himalayas, the Tibetan Himalayas, will not be free until China is free. And um, for observations like this, uh, Leo Xiaobo has been placed under house arrest. Um, uh, but I think that that um, uh, does provide a very deep insight into what the kinds of political challenges we face going forward. I think the question, uh, some of the, uh, the, 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 the fundamental intellectual architecture for dealing with these new politics hasn't yet been built. And what's required is a broader discussion with the Chinese, uh, with India, with all of the peoples of Asia, including the United States, 
about how China's own traditions of governance and um, uh, religion can enlighten a much, much more humane and just way forward. Um, but again, I think the center of gravity of this discussion does begin with the kind of governing arrangement which we have in Beijing and the fact that there are many voices for reform within Beijing and within China itself, which we should take an active interest in um, supporting. Thank you. Um, I th I'm going to try and keep my comments even shorter uh, than uh, Eric's. Uh, Eric, uh, Eric's five minutes were Indian five minutes, which, as everyone knows, <laughs> run longer. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and come back to American time, if I can. Um, China and India are the two uh, giants uh, that straddle the Himalayas one to the north of the Himalayas, one to the south of the Himalayas. Both have uh, comparable resources, comparable size of population. Right now, of course, China's economy uh, is much uh, larger uh, and is growing uh, at a, a reasonable rate. India has a lot of catching up to do. But the rivalry that may actually have a more uh, negative impact on that region is not the rivalry between China and India. Uh, the reason why I say that is because both countries being large, being cognizant of their size, and being historic entities going back several centuries, uh, have an understanding of what they can and cannot do with one another. The rivalry that is likely to be unpredictable is the rivalry between the new kid on the block, Pakistan, and the historic entity, India, out of which Pakistan was carved out. If you look at the map of the Himalayas, all the countries straddling it have been there for a long time. Uh, so the Nepalese know uh, that they are bound together by a common language, by the fact that they have had a monarchy going back a long time. The Bhutanese have been an entity for a long time in history. Sikkim, which even though it's now part of the modern union of India, but it has an entity and an identity that goes back a long time. And of course, India has been an entity uh, for, uh, for, for uh, thousands of years, as has China, irrespective of where the boundaries of that China ought to be. Pakistan, on the other hand, is an idea that uh, uh, that uh, appeared only 74 years ago and a country that appeared only 67 years ago. And that has made Pakistan quite uh, sort of uh, unwilling to accept uh, history as the determinant of the future. So what we see is Pakistan willing to use uh, A, uh, subconventional warfare and B, exercising asymmetric power. Pa India and Pakistan are not comparable in size, but Pakistan obsesses over its competition with India. It wants to be India's equal without being India's equal. It's a, as I have often said, it is like Belgium spending all its time and energy trying to compete with either Germany or France. Of course, the Belgians understood that a long time ago and realized that they would have to make a whole lot more chocolate than they do <laughs> to be able to compete with France and Germany. Unfortunately, my countrymen are unwilling to recognize that, which is why I'm sitting here and not in Islamabad running the place. Um, what is the Chinese connection with Pakistan? Well, China, of course, looked upon Pakistan, especially after the 1962 
Sino-Indian War as a potential ally in the containment of India. Before that, Pakistan was the first Muslim country to recognize the People's Republic of China and establish diplomatic relations. Uh, that enabled Pakistan to be a kind of window on the Muslim world for China. After 62, it became more of a proactive combination, sort of, you know, we need to contain India. But things have changed, except that people in Pakistan are not yet aware of that, that huge change. China has recognized that it does not want to have a conflict with India, and it has disagreements with India, but as the Chinese president told the Pakistani parliament when he came to Pakistan in 1998, it is best to set aside disputes that you cannot resolve to be able to move forward uh, uh, for things that you can share. And so India and China have something like $70 billion trade every year on average. Pakistan and China, on the other hand, again, size matters. Uh, Pakistan and China only have about $10 billion in trade. And while there's a lot of noise about this $46 billion to $54 billion investment plans, any investment that involves building roads and rails through high mountains, uh, the Karakuram mountain ranges, all the way down to the south of Pakistan, to the Gwadar and Karachi coast, is not something that's going to happen day after tomorrow. It'll take a long time. In fact, the Gawadar port, which uh, was first spoken of by Pakistan in 1972, and the then Pakistani leader, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, offered the Gawadar port to the Americans, that, you know, we want you to develop a port on our coast, and then you can use that as a naval base. The Americans said, we are not interested. Uh, by then, they had uh, opened up access to the various Persian Gulf countries, and of course, they were very close to Iran. The Chinese were the second ones to be offered, but between 74 and 2007, they did not invest while talking about it. So you find a lot of mention of Gawadar as a potential new port that will be open to the Chinese in Pakistani literature going back to the 70s. But really, the port started getting built only in 2007. And even after its, after its completion, it's not an active port for the simple reason that Pakistan is not a country where the economy is growing fast enough to have a lot of traffic on the port. And so, will China really go through with all these massive projects? I'm not too certain. I think China's real purpose is to reassure Pakistan because they see Pakistan as a country that is uh, that manages to come to the brink every few years. So they want to reassure Pakistan. Uh, they want to uh, uh, ensure that Pakistan does not economically collapse, but they also want to encourage Pakistan to be a more, shall we say, normal state, uh, a country that understands the fundamental principles of global economics and global international relations, that does not allow jihadis from all over the world to congregate, including from China. Because China is concerned that much of the violence that is taking place in Xinjiang among uh, Uyghur Muslims emanates from camps run by various jihadi groups on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, uh, partly in Pakistan, partly in Afghanistan. Uh, so it was interesting. It, uh, it is interesting that Pakistan and China have a lot of po po poetical references to their relationship. And it is often said uh, that the... Pakistani-Chinese relationship is higher than the Karakuram Mountains and deeper than the Indian Ocean and sweeter than the sweetest honey. <laughs> but it's very interesting that the Chinese president, uh, when he went to China, Pakistan recently, he described this 
not like previous leaders who used to say, say it as a statement, which kind of made Pakistanis feel it's a statement of policy. He actually said, this is poetry. And in his substantial remarks, he made two important uh, uh, deviations from Pakistan, uh, from Chinese leaders visiting Pakistan in the past. First, he did not mention Kashmir at all. He did not mention the Pakistan-India dispute over Kashmir. Pakistan has always expected China to help Pakistan in the Kashmir dispute. In this, by not mentioning Kashmir, the Chinese very subtly signaled to the Pakistanis, calm down on this one. And the second subtle thing was a single line in the joint statement where it said, quote, the Chinese side encouraged the Pakistani side to resolve their differences with their neighbors, meaning stop fighting with Afghanistan and India, which is what makes Pakistan such a precarious place. It's a small country. It's, uh, I mean, okay, it's 200 million people, but compared to India, for example, it is only one-sixth the population, one-tenth the size of the economy, and one-twentieth the size of foreign exchange reserves. The number of PhDs that have been produced in Pakistan since its inception in 1947 equals the number of PhDs that are produced each year in India. I know that there are Indians in the audience audience who would say, yeah, 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 we know how good those PhDs are, but the mere fact, <laughs> but the fact still remains that in most, uh, by most uh, uh, elements of national power, Pakistan is way behind India, and yet Pakistan is India's equal in nuclear weapons. Pakistan is a nuclear weapons power, and Pakistan wants to play catch up in conventional military capability and has an advantage in subconventional military capability, which is also known internationally now in the post 9 11 world as the T word terrorism. That is not a good recipe for Pakistan. So, China, I think, actually, in relation to Pakistan, may be a moderating influence on Pakistan. It may be the country that may actually be trying to persuade the Pakistanis in its own way that while we are with you in making sure that India doesn't overrun you, not that India wants to, but that you have to get your act together. And this assurance of investment, etc., is, you know, if you can do the investment, play the investment game, get into it. They didn't promise aid unlike the Americans, who are always willing to write a check sort of <laughs> to, to calm Pakistani nerves down. Uh, 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 they are not writing a check. They are not giving aid. They are willing to do solid investment projects based on a return on equity, and if Pakistan can ensure that. Now, where does that leave us in relation to the Himalayas and Pakistan's role in the Himalayas? The fact remains that Pakistan, unless as a nation and a state it can be stabilized and some level of uh, comfort can be found in Pakistan about being a new country, but a country that looks, instead of inventing a history, starts building a future. Instead of pretending that it can relocate itself spiritually in the Middle East because it's Muslim, recognize that it's an integral part of South Asia and that's where its future lies. If that can happen, then Pakistan can join the other little states of the Himalayas in being a positive contributor to the Himalayas. If not, the other states will have to interact with Pakistan in a manner in which Pakistan does not play the role of spoiler, especially by igniting radical Islamism. There are Muslim pockets, for example, among the Buddhists in Ladakh and everywhere. And if radical Islam keeps spilling over, it will be a, a, a destroyer of traditional culture and the tradition of uh, religious harmony. 
And of course, if the, these massive infrastructure projects also are initiated uh, without regard for environmental and uh, uh, and ecological uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, factors, then they could themselves be uh, unfortunate uh, in terms of providing for a more stable Himalayan region. Thank you all very much. Doctor, I'm, I'm not sure the five-minute challenge has been convincingly won yet, so <laughs> the field is open to you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, uh, let me see if I can do in the five to seven minutes, I thought, uh, was the uh, barrier. Uh, so I, I'll try and make uh, three essential points. Uh, one is the uh, how does India respond to the new challenges of connectivity, which is now the central theme that arises out of the Silk Road uh, initiative from China, as well as its own internal logic of economic development. The second, I think, aspect is the tension between the notions of sovereignty, I mean, how India, China, and the region uh, sees uh, sovereignty, but at the same time has to deal with uh, cultural borders that do not match the political borders. And how do you deal with that? A challenge uh, in, in terms of managing this, this complexity. And finally, uh, how does India respond to uh, the dealing with the, the prospects for dangerous regional rivalry, and can it do something to mitigate it and to produce an outcome where there's more cooperation within the region uh, than rivalry. But before I make these three points, I mean, I think I just wanted to make a point uh, about when we talk about the Himalayas, I mean, I think it, it's really a shorthand for a much bigger space. I mean, there were references made to Tibet and uh, Xinjiang, uh, but I think it, it's a much larger space. I mean, I think the mountains themselves, uh, Himalayas is normally used as a, as a shorthand for a full range of different mountains. I mean, I think the Kunlun, uh, the, the Pamir, the Hindu Kush, uh, the, eastern, the Great Himalayas, uh, which is what most of us were referring to, and then the Eastern Himalayas, which stretch into Burma, the border between Burma uh, and China. So this is a, a vast mountain range. And who was it who was referring to uh, the, the Indian plate knocking up against the European pl uh, Eurasian plate? Uh, that it is that great collision that produced this expansive mountains. And the regions that we talk about uh, are around the spine of the Great Himalayas uh, include some of the most exotic, most romantic, most uh, complex regions. I mean, I think from Central Asia uh, to Burma, to Northern Burma, to India's Northeast, to India's Kashmir, uh, to the northern areas that are in Pakistan today, uh, Tibet, Xinjiang, Yunnan. So you, you have actually a fairly uh, expansive set of regions that each one brings its own specific complexity and have become, I think, for the first time, a part of a geopolitical play that they were not. At least for the last uh, quite quite uh, at least two centuries, that the the rise of China uh, has opened up these spaces uh, in ways in which uh, they were not before. Uh, in fact, uh, these regions were not as remote as we often think of them, uh, because there were periods when these regions were very quite integrally connected to others. For example, when we talk about the Silk Road, that's really about a subcontinent that China uh, linked to an, through a set of roads. Uh, to the great Roman, the Mediterranean civilizations, and to Iran, uh, that the, the, the emergence of the maritime age made this remote. The decline of overland trade made them remote. It is not that the remoteness was a natural condition, but it's the change of the economic geography and economic conditions uh, which produced that thing. And today what we're seeing is, is breaking of that barrier by the rise of the Chinese economic power and its determination to, one, connect its own markets internally, 
the whole idea of marching west, and then connecting them to the neighboring regions in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Central Asia, and as the way, all the way up to Europe, where the trains are now running from Chongqing all the way to, uh, they want to extend it to Baltics as well. So, so you're talking about the second largest economy for the first time cracking open the inner spaces of, of Eurasia and connecting them. So I think this is a, a gigantic churn that is taking place and dealing with it, I think, is going to be a real major challenge. And I think are three issues then that arise. I think one is India's connectivity. And I think in the, the morning we talked about, in the earlier session we talked about that how do you do modernization, development, connectivity without wrecking the environment. Mm. Uh, that I think the question of sustainable development, I think if you merely bring in railroads, I mean, what does the, the Tibet Railway done? What do the people feel about the consequences of building a railway land to Tibet? That you, you have to find it, you can't say there can't be any development in Tibet, Xinjiang, or the inner regions of Asia. But the question is, have we learned something over the last 200 years of developmental experience that we can do this with greater sensitivity to, uh, to ecology and to cultures? I mean, I think that is the big question, which I think both China and India, I think all the major countries uh, will have to uh, address in a, in, a, in, a, in a fundamental uh, manner. I think the interesting thing, of course, connectivity is that uh, there's there's no road that is only used for one purpose. A moment the Chinese have put roads and railway, railways into Tibet and the, the Himalayan regions, of course you can move your military as well. Uh, that of course we know that the great railways of America were a consequence of the civil war. Uh, that railways uh, and connectivity are linked to the larger uh, geopolitical trends. And I think once China is doing that, I think India too is responding now to reconnect its own regions, of its frontier regions, and then the danger is that the militaries are beginning to operate much closer to the border, and this generates its own tensions. So therefore, a connectivity with it brings uh, the dynamic of military uh, engagement between the two sides that has to be addressed. And I think here, both China and India will be tested quite, quite severely in terms of how do you manage this new capacity to deploy close to the borders, and how do we deal with them? I think that's one, one challenge. The second is the, 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 the tension between sovereignty as understood by the post-colonial states and the cultural borders that, that are separate. That after all, as we said, Tibet and Ladakh are connected, Nepal and uh, Tibet are connected, Xinj uh, Yunnan is connected to northern Burma and to northeast India. Uh, you have Xinjiang is connected to Kashmir and other parts of Pakistan. So what you have is that how do we think about sovereignty within this context? And I think that is the big challenge. There, I think, uh, there was a time when, you know, at least Deng Xiaoping said that, look, uh, two country, one country, two systems. I mean, it's, a, it's a quite an imaginative way of posing, look, uh, it's an, again, I think, ancient Chinese wisdom that, look, big countries and small fish cannot be fried too hard. You, you try to handle them too much, they tend to uh, fall apart. So, so therefore, this idea that, look, you've got to be sophisticated, because India and China are the oldest uh, continuing civilizations that the territoriality was never absolutely defined. So you had a slightly vague uh, you know, relationship with your peripheral regions, but today you impose the Westphalian notion. And I think the, the challenge for us is China is now moving towards a more definitive, more harder interpretation of its sovereignty. And if, if it stays with Deng Xiaoping's ideas of, of a, a softer way of dealing with the parts 
that you are. I mean, I think Dalai Lama is merely seeking autonomy, he's not seeking independence. So therefore, how do you deal with your frontier regions? Can you deal with them with greater sensitivity? One country, two systems. Uh, India too has this Article 370, which kind of uh, created that space, how do we deal with Kashmir, how do we deal with northeastern states, which are not always central to the mainland. So therefore you need political administrative arrangements that are sensitive to the peripheral regions and connect with them. Uh, and it, one is the, the nature of the, that political relationship within the sovereign space. The other, of course, is the whole question of how do you deal with ethnic rights, cultural rights. And then on top of it, these cultural ethnic links exist across borders. So the question of creating soft borders while promoting connectivity, accepting some broad agreements on borders, but then creating mutually beneficial connectivities across the border, those I think are really the test, and I think going there is going to be the problem. And lastly, uh, let me just conclude by saying that there is room for, I think, the temptation for rivalry between India, China, India, Pakistan, and then the US is going to be a big player in all this. For example, U.S. talks about pivoting to the east, the Chinese talk about marching west. So what the U.S. does in one region has a big effect. The U.S. is seen as competing with China and northern Burma, but today it welcomes larger, Pakistan, larger Chinese role in Pakistan Afghanistan. So I think it's not a neat paradigm that I think this is where I think what we need is that India, China, and the U.S. begin to think more creatively, more uh, purposefully in terms of can we produce outcomes that can moderate the negative forces like the Taliban in Pakistan. Can we work together to, to create concepts for ecologically sustainable development? Can we limit the competition between ourselves to preserve one of the world's most important, culturally most uh, uh, you know, extraordinary regions that have created uh, their own cultures over such a long period? Can we do this within a cooperative framework? And I think there, I think India will have to play its role. And we still need strong support from the US, as well as an engagement with, with China on a substantive, sustainable basis. I think I'll stop. Didn't meet the challenge, really. So we have run a little bit over, but perhaps we could take one or two moments just before uh, lunch, which we're waiting for, um, for questions from the audience. Are there any questions, or are people too hungry? <laughs> Thank you. This is Luis Sanguerra from Nepal. I'm a graduate student at Kyogi. Uh, to the panelists, I would like to draw their attention. Uh, since uh, we're talking about the future of the Himalayas, uh, I would like to uh, update the information that uh, Nepal, uh, after ten, it has ten, the 10 years of Mao's insurgency has been successfully mainstreamed uh, recently, uh, recently. And the next thing is that 250 years of monarchy has been abolished uh, completely in this modern era in the country. That was for 250 years. And despite the size of the country, um, uh, the process of making federal constitution is under process despite the failure of promulgations of the constitutions in the, from the first assembly. And, and recently, uh, a devastating earthquake of 8.9 magnitude has damaged the nation and diverted the political issues. 
So my question is, despite these facts, the issues of Nepal has been excluded in this discussion, in this forum, which I feel that the economic development political political stability in the Himalaya region uh, cannot be completely anticipated uh, by excluding one of the shrubbery entities in the Himalaya region. So that's my essential questions to the whole panelists. Thank you. Could I respond to that? I think, yeah, well, yeah, but I think we did discuss yeah, Nepal in the in the morning. Frankly, the sir, I think you prepared your uh, intervention before this session began because I started by talking extensively about Nepal and so did the others. And, and the morning the session I had a lot of discussion of Nepal. You probably missed that. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it, obviously it wasn't enough, uh, you know, we, everybody wants, uh, in, in half a day you can, you know, when you're discussing so many places, we can't have enough discussion of Nepal to satisfy you or others who may be focused on Nepal. But the fact remains that we did discuss Nepal, and we all consider Nepal an important country in that region. 